Welcome to Deutsche Bank's Horizon Scanning Podcast, where we examine emerging threats and opportunities facing the economy. I'm your host, Christiana Riley, CEO of Deutsche Bank in the Americas. Today, we're continuing our three-part series exploring economic inequality in the United States. Building on our last conversation on the state of inequality, today we're looking across the horizon and unpacking technology trends that could narrow or further exacerbate economic disparities across the United States. For this conversation, I'm joined by Robert Atkinson, the founder and president of the Information Technology and Innovation Foundation, or the ITIF. From Deloitte, I'm joined by Global Future of Work leader, Steve Hatfield. And finally, Deutsche Bank's own Abjit Walia, our global head of technology investment strategy. Steve, I'm gonna start the conversation today with you. What's the adoption level of automation right now? What do you think is a realistic trajectory and how focused are Deloitte's clients on some of these technologies? Well, Christiana, uh, it's, it's absolutely increasing. The, the trend lines around future of work pre-pandemic were starting to emerge. The dialogue around automation in the workplace, the robot apocalypse, the economist had talked about tailorism and digital tailorism, so automating bad process was certainly part of the conversation, along with the emergence of virtualization of work and alternative talent models. So because of these digital platforms, you can source different types of talent, but they were all small. Um, the gig platforms and gig workers, we still thought of them as task-driven. We had the emergence of Upwork and Fiverr, which are higher order skills, but early days. And virtual work was only about 4% of the U.S. workforce, um, growing at about 173% over the 10-year period prior, but still small. And then the pandemic. And Anne-Marie Slaughter from the New Enterprise Foundation coined it best as, as a time machine into the future, right? an acceleration of trend lines that we thought would take place over decades in a matter of weeks. And that demonstration effect is clear. Suddenly, somewhere in the... 40 to 50% of the US workforce was operating remotely and virtually, and it was working. Now you have the, a, a dialogue around um, the increased growth of gig platforms. Gig workers in the US are growing at 8%, and they predict that by 2028, they will overtake, if you will, the full-time workforce at that percentage of growth. Not sure that will happen, but that's currently the prediction according to freelancer.com. And when it comes to automation, we've been doing a variety of different um, surveys with our clients over the course of the pandemic. And one that just came out over the summer of a survey we did with Fortune, 74% of the CEOs in the survey are going to accelerate their digital transformations as a result of the pandemic. 71% are going to accelerate their workforce transformations. And the other uh, initiatives that, that you would think of all then begin to trickle into the 40 and 30 and 20 percentages. So those two jump to the top. And so this combination of automation and digitization of the workplace and transforming the workforce in the process is front and center right now. All of that certainly resonates with me and many of the initiatives that we've got going on thinking through our transformation, Steve. Robert, can I bring you in on that point to share some of your perspectives? I'd be delighted, Christiana. Thank you. So, I mean, a couple of things. One, first of all, there's a lot of misunderstanding, I, I think, in this space. One is uh, 
uh, an overstatement of the growth of income inequality. When you really look at the more recent evidence of that, particularly from the Congressional Budget Office, income inequality has grown. There's no question about that, but it has not grown as much as the initial sort of alarmist claims said. Um, Piketty and Saz's work, for example, said that you know almost all the gains went to the top uh, 10% and that the bottom 50% actually lost income. That simply was not true. And even their later work showed that that was not true. You know, virtually all Americans do gain from technological productivity. Uh, so number one, it's not as bad as we think. Uh, secondly, even though income inequality has gone up, it really doesn't make any sense in our view to blame it on technology. One of the reasons why is because you, if you see sort of the, the wage gap between what's called the 50-10 and the 90-10, the 90-10 would be the top 10% versus the bottom 10%. The 50-10 wage gap has not changed in 30 years. Uh, so it's still the same. And you would think it would be because supposedly the, in the 50s, you're starting to get into college-educated people. Almost all the income inequality is from the top 1%. Uh, you know, I'm a big basketball fan, and I remember watching basketball in the 80s and uh, with Larry Bird, Magic Johnson, and all those folks. And the median, the, the mean NBA salary in 1979 was $173,000. Now, obviously, that's not inflation adjusted. Uh, today, it's, it's $8.3 million. Now, that's not because more college kids went to NBA kids went to college. It's not because they sort of figured out better skills. It's just that it becomes much more of a winner-take-all market. And so if you're LeBron James or if you're Seth Curry, you're going to make $40 million a year. And I think that we have to apply that to the rest of the economy. We see superstar lawyers. We see superstar uh, firms now. The OECD has shown that very clearly, that only a small percentage of firms have really boosted their productivity with these so-called superstar firms. Lots of firms are much more stagnant. So... Uh, I'm not really worried at all about this narrative of technological change. And the reason I'm not worried about it is because in the last 10 years, the U.S. has been in a productivity, a deep productivity slump, the lowest rates of labor productivity growth really since the war in World War II. So we've got to do everything possible to get that back up. And um, as Steve was talking about, a lot of firms now are really looking at that front and center, which is good. But it's not clear to me that we're going to be able to Maybe if we go from one and a half to 3% productivity growth, I, I think, boy, we, we, we should be all counting our lucky stars if we can do that. But I don't think that that's going to be leading to income inequality. Thanks for that perspective. I'm going to bring in Apjit Walia in the conversation, who has done um, some very interesting work over the course of the last year on the longer term effects of the growth of the digital economy and the risk uh, that potentially that development and the broader digitization of the US economy could leave minority communities shut out or at a, at a minimum deeply underprepared for a vast majority of jobs in, in just a few decades. Apjit, could you share in a bit more detail the findings of your research and how they have bearing on this conversation around future drivers uh, of, of inequality? Great, thank you, uh, Christina. Um, so we, there's two reasons we believe that as tech and diffusion of tech continues to seep into the economy and more and more skill sets require a digitization uh, bent or training in, in digitization, why um, certain communities will be left behind if there is not 
not, not much done to address it. Uh, so our research showed that looking at some of these communities, the gaps were fairly large. You know, if you look at basic broadband access, the gap between minorities and others was 10 years. PC ownership gaps at 20 to 30%. Uh, broadband quality, 30, 30% gap. Four times more minority sided poor basic internet connect connectivity than others. Uh, these are basic frameworks, connectivity, which requires someone to be, be, be at work, whether working from home or have skills, which, which show the, the gaps are fairly structural. And as digitization continues to see the economy over the next 20, 30 years, uh, if these are not addressed, these communities get left behind. Uh, when when in, uh, in surveyed, 70 to 80% of these communities said they were unprepared for some of the digital requirements, digital sk- skills of the of current day jobs. And it, it, this is changing rapidly. So that's the first thing we looked at. The second thing, I believe, which is important from technology and automation, is as tech continues to, to seep itself the economy, it's a fairly deflationary cycle. And with the, with the deflation cycle, what it does is it gives a free call option to central banks around the world to continue to print money. And that itself creates asset price uh, um, differentials between the people who have assets, continue to get wealthier, and the ones who don't uh, remain behind. So tech itself, by, by automating, is creating this virtuous loop where the inequality uh, continues to to be there, and I believe this unless is addressed rapidly or ra- and radically, these 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 gaps will continue to get bigger. Steve, can I come back to you and the dialogue that you have with many of our country's largest corporations on these issues? Does this issue of potential uh, inequality in future labor market opportunities? Uh, come up? Uh, is it considered kind of a, a strategic long-term challenge for the corporations you discuss with? So I think that given the, the social dynamics of the last year, diversity and, and inclusion and equity is certainly front and center for many of our clients. But I think that often as they're thinking about it now, they're taking what might feel like a myopic view in that they're looking at it in terms of Um, We need to increase sort of the focus on diversity and equity and inclusion because that's important. Um, Virtualization of work, for example, can amplify our access to diverse talent and that becomes a real benefit. Um, But but it doesn't go much further in my mind than that. And I'm being provocative for a reason because it's a much more expansive conversation than I believe clients are actually looking at. So for example, um, four in 10 people with disabilities in the US have jobs. The other six in 10 could potentially find work in a remote work environment. And yet the dialogue on the, on the disabled population isn't as strong as it should be. Um, somewhere in the vicinity of 48% of um, black and African-American workers in the US code switch at work. This is a Pew Research piece. And the virtual environment would offer them the opportunity to not have to do that. And so there are these other dimensions of the inclusion conversation that I think become really relevant, um, that build off of some of what Robert and Apchit are talking about. So if you think about the, the way in which we can focus on um, creating a more inclusive workplace through the work practices, through ways of working, through team leadership, through the kinds of things we're doing with performance management um, and career development, then you can actually create something really virtuous. I think the other dimension, which is also now emerging, but is still nascent, 
Christiana, is the idea around paying for skills. And so not looking at people in terms of the pedigree that they have, but rather in terms of the skills that they bring to the table. The Philadelphia Fed did a research piece that showed that somewhere in the vicinity of 36 million Americans could earn 70% more if we thought about them in terms of their skills. And suddenly in a virtual and, and digital environment, those skills take on a whole different flavor. And now that we're looking at an environment of talent shortage, what that sort of says is, well, do we need to start thinking about how we address the skills shortage? Because that's really what's underlying it. And therein lies some of what Apjeet's talking about, the access to broadband, the access to PC, the access to um, uh, programs that can help you develop coding skills rather quickly, or cloud skills, or, or uh, a variety of other technical skills that would be really useful in the current work, work environment. That's, I think, the direction of travel that we need to take. And I'm not seeing enough organizations think about it in that way. So you mentioned the research that the Federal Reserve uh, System has done on this clearly, you know, labor market participation and current short-term labor shortages are weighing very heavily uh, on the minds of, of policymakers. Um, question first back to you, Steve, but then also to bring Robert back into the conversation. You know, thinking about the intensity of this dynamic of automation at upskilling that's required, what do you see in terms of the scope for policy intervention? How much of that needs to be carrot uh, versus stick? Um, and how concerned do you think policymakers are? How clearly and presently uh, do they see the risks here? So I think that the, the, the policy arena is emerging pretty strongly into this space. Um, so, and you're seeing a lot of that in what President Biden and Congress are now putting forward uh, and are trying to address things like the broadband access and the digital divide and, and an entire part of the, the dialogue is about human infrastructure. I would, I would hope to see more and more public-private partnerships in community colleges and others that are going to ensure that the workforce of today is actually learning the skills that will be relevant for them in the future. And we are now seeing sort of the work, workforce development um, policymakers and nonprofits and so forth start paying attention to the fact that are we actually unfortunately helping our current populations learn skills that won't be as useful as the ones that are now emerging thanks to this acceleration. So some of that actually does need to be very much addressed. I think the other dimension that, that's also really important are things around the care economy, childcare, elder care, and so forth. I had the pleasure of um, listening to Sally Krawcheck from Elvest talk a little bit about um, the dynamics around uh, women in the workforce today. Evidently, it's the, the lowest participation of women in the U.S. workforce than we've had in the last 33 years. Her comment, a little snarky, but rather true, is in Europe, we have a social safety net. In the U.S., we have women. So that's actually the dynamic that happened. They left the workplace because of the care economy. So part of what needs to also come to the table from a policy standpoint is supporting um, families in that way so that childcare, elder care, so forth is cared for because then the, 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 those that left the workforce can return. Robert, can I bring you into this conversation for perspectives that you may have on the role that, that government, uh, broadly speaking, needs to play in addressing some of these labor market dynamics that are driving, uh, you know, I recognize uh, you indicated not dramatic inequality issues, but there certainly are, are, are is a, an existing rift and one that may be emerging in the way that Steve has just described. Sure. So I, I think the first 
key thing is to really get the analysis right. I, if I have to pick one problem, inequality versus growth of productivity, I'm going to pick the latter, frankly, as the, the key factor that's keeping down half of Americans uh, from, from advancing. You know, you, you simply cannot raise wages without raising productivity. If you, what we're seeing now is companies are having to raise wages, but that just results in inflation. And so people are not getting ahead. So you have to be able to raise wages without inflationary pressures. And the only way to do that is productivity. You know, I think there's a lot of misunderstanding about skill gaps. Uh, over 50% of all new jobs in the U.S. don't require anything more than mid, like six weeks of training. They don't even require anything more than a high school degree. I think if we really, really want to focus on opportunity, we've got to say, we've got to figure out a way to say, how come we have so many, frankly, unskilled jobs in the U.S. that don't pay very much? You can raise the minimum wage, which I think we should do. You can do other things, improving skills. But at the end of the day, we've got over 20% of Americans who have too many skills for the jobs they have. Now, that's not because they're dumb people. It's because there aren't enough good jobs and there are too many if you will, you know, low skill, low wage jobs. So I think that's number one. Um, and, and the way to do that, frankly, is with technology. Uh, there's lots and lots of ways to automate uh, lower skill and lower wage jobs. Now, I certainly am the first to acknowledge that that can be hard on individual workers. And that's, to me, the place where we need to intervene. What I worry about is that we've gotten to this narrative where some people like Daron Essegamblu at MIT and, and Bill Gates are saying we should have a robot tax. We should tax automation. That's exactly the wrong thing to do. We need more of that. But what we need to do then is really make sure, as Steve has alluded to, um, and object is help workers make those transitions, including through community college programs, including through programs that are much more tied to employers. Uh, that's to me the key thing that we're not doing enough of. We gotta get employers more engaged in all of that. Um, last thing I'll just say is, is Washington is doing some of that. Um, uh, for example, the, the, I think it's the $60 billion broadband package. Um, some of that is, most of that is for unserved areas, but a, a bunch of that will be for lower income people. And I guess I'm, I have a little bit different perspective with an option. I don't see that as a race issue per se. Uh, it's really an income issue. So blacks who are in the middle class or the upper middle class, they have the same level of broadband adoption as whites who, when you control for income. The issue really for blacks is that there are more black households that have lower incomes, but there are also white households that have lower incomes. And that's why programs like uh, what the Biden administration is trying to do, where you would provide broadband subsidies for low income households, I think that makes a lot of sense but it's not simply a race issue. It's, I think it's a little bit more of an income issue and, and we need to just address that, that broadband is a critical thing to have and they're just people who have a hard time affording it. And that's to me, a public responsibility to help with that. Abjit, I wanna bring you in on this public versus uh, private sector debate, because I know it's something that you focused on in your research and the recommendations that you that you posed uh, on the back of your research. And I think Rob alluded to this as well, that there is some scope for the private sector to be playing a role here in vocational training uh, around this to step in and close the gap. Can you comment a little bit more on that and, and you know, where the, the, the impetus for that uh, ultimately needs to come from and how realistic it may be that we would start to see the private sector stepping in more aggressively uh, in coming years? Yes, we believe there is a large scope for the private sector to step in and help 
address the digital divide. We talked about this last year uh, in a study where you believe $15 billion in amount uh, over a five-year period could address uh, PC access, connectivity, and most important, training to middle and high school children for families uh, earning 30000 and lower. About 10 million households come in this uh, sample. And ventures like this could start to make a difference to the divide. Um, there's obviously an expectation for the government to do things, but big tech, we believe, has had done so well over the last couple of years, especially during COVID, um, with the, uh, the e-commerce curve uh, being pulled, pulled forward. Uh, we believe they have the know-how, uh, the skill set, and definitely, obviously, the capital to come together and uh, address gaps like this. Uh, so if the private sector starts stepping in and addressing these digital divides across the country, um, looking at different uh, hemispheres, I think it, it would make a major difference. And I, I think we'll see more of that over the next few years. So in closing this conversation, I'm going to go quickly through a lightning round of predictions around the level of automation each of you expect uh, the economy to have achieved by the end of this decade and what the impact uh, of that is likely to be. Has Tesla built a humanoid robot to take the place of human, worker, human workers in factories by 2030? Um, what other impact and other risk do we see for potentially historically marginalized groups of the economy? So I'm going to start quickly with you, Steve. What's your prediction for automation by the end of this decade? So I'm a bit of a possibilist. And I see what's happening right now around some of the things that Robert was saying in terms of productivity. Organizations are looking at reimagining work and re-architecting it to elevate what humans do, digitize what's sort of dirty, dangerous, and dull. And you're watching more and more of that unfold. So I believe that we're going to emerge into an environment where more work will be meaningful and value add and more humanized and that more digitization underneath that will enable that to happen. I like that optimism. Rob, can I bring you in? Uh, thank you. Yeah, there's a great Twilight Zone episode from the 60s about a manager who decides to bring in robots and, and get, he lays off everybody. And the very last scene is another robot comes in and replaces the manager. We're not going to get that. Uh, I, I think by the end of this decade, I, I if I have to predict or bet, I would say we'll probably start to see a productivity uptick in a couple of years. It, these technologies take a while for them to develop, to emerge, for companies to get used to them. But I would think by the end of the 20, by 2030, I would, I would expect that we're going to see north of 2% annualized productivity growth, which for those of you who don't know is you know, a lot better than where we are now. Maybe we'll get up to two and a half. But the difference between one and two is huge. Just like imagine you have a, you have a, you have a stock account and it's a, making 1% earnings a year versus 2%. After 20 years, the 2% one is vastly bigger. So it's a big, big deal. So I think we can do that, particularly if the government doesn't screw it up. If we don't go for for example, there's a there's a there's in the, in the 2018 tax bill, there was a really great provision that allowed all companies, big and small, to expense their capital equipment in the first year to write it off. Great idea, but it expires. It expires, I think, end of this year or next year. I can't remember. And I think it's going to be hard to put that back in place because there are people who say, oh, we don't want to lay porkers off. So I think if we keep the right policies in place, complement them with good and better policies to help workers make adjustments, then I think, you know, maybe by the end of the decade, we can get up to two and a half percent productivity growth. And by the way, when that happens, everybody's going to be happier. 
The economy is going to grow. People have more money, so they'll spend it. Uh, businesses will have more revenue, so they'll be investing. Government has more tax revenue. Growth makes everything easier. There's a lot of optimism around the call today. Abjit, <laughs> are you continuing in that vein? Yes, I'm fairly optimistic as what technology will do. I mean, right now, advanced robotics is sub 1% of total production. That's going to take off this decade. The cost of a robot, an advanced robot, is going to drop to somewhere around 20000 by the end of the decade. So things are going to change a lot. Uh, but I believe new, new jobs, new job uh, skill sets will, will come up. And I, I, I believe eventually technology will create a, a new cycle, just like the, the one we've had from the farm to the factory to the office, a new virtualized cycle where people, uh, as, as uh, my predecessor, my uh, Particle panels are saying there will be fair amount of growth and productivity gains in tech in the next 10 years or so. Thank you to all three of you for an excellent conversation on this topic. I enjoy it, enjoyed it thoroughly, uh, and uh, we look forward to continuing this debate over the remainder of this series. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Horizon Scanning has been produced by Deutsche Bank and is intended for general information purposes only. By accessing Horizon Scanning, you confirm that you are entitled to do so in accordance with your own regulatory requirements. Any opinions, estimates or projections discussed in this podcast constitute the current judgment of the speaker at the time of recording and do not represent a formal or official view of Deutsche Bank. Deutsche Bank does not make any representations or warranties in respect of the currency, accuracy, or completeness of any information included in this podcast, or the reasonableness of any opinions expressed. Information included may not be complete or up-to-date for your purposes and is subject to change. For further disclosures and other important information, please visit research.db.com.